We would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Preborn. When a mother meets her baby on an ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection. And the majority of the time, she will choose life. But she can't do it without our help. Preborn needs us, the pro-life community, to come alongside her. One ultrasound is just $28. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby or visit preborn.com. Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. The U.S. Constitution obligates our government to preserve and protect the rights that our founders recognize come from God, our creator, not our government. I believe that scripture in the Bible is very clear that God is the one that raised up each of you and God has allowed us to be brought here to this specific moment in time. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Well, good morning. It is February 8th, and at 10 a.m. this morning, the Supreme Court of the United States will hear oral arguments in Trump versus Anderson. This is an historic case about whether former President Donald Trump is permitted on the primary ballot in Colorado. So this is this case is narrowly about the interpretation of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, the uh, so-called insurrection clause. But today will also mark the first time the nine justices will appear in public discussing January 6th, Donald Trump, and also the 2024 presidential election. And so the question that is presented to the U.S. Supreme Court is this. Did the Colorado Supreme Court err in ordering President Trump excluded from the 2024 presidential primary ballot? So joining me now to discuss is Jordan Seculo, who is the executive director director of the American Center for Law and Justice, and the ACLJ represents the Colorado Republican Party. So, Jordan, thanks so much for joining me, and uh, let, let's break this down in terms of what the Supreme Court is actually deciding. I mean, I think today what we're going to decide is, and see from the court, one is where they go are these kind of a multiple argument paths you can take and get to the same conclusion that Colorado was wrong by their court determining, the state court determining, ultimately the state Supreme Court determining that they could allow the Secretary of State to unilaterally make a decision that President Trump uh, was barred by the 14th Amendment, Section 3, for, for the insurrection until January 6th, and some of the lead-up to questioning the ballot security, things like that, the voting. Even though uh, there's been no conviction of that in, the, in a court of law. So they were jumping, you know, jumping one step of the 14th Amendment. And remember, there was an impeachment over these acts and, and he was acquitted. So in the only time this was kind of tried in, in a sense that you could make an argument, he was acquitted of that. And then in other courts, even in cases that are pending right now, he hasn't been charged with uh, the, 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 what's mentioned the 14th Amendment. So right there, again, that, that that's kind of like the bold big picture. It's whether or not this is self-executing. What does that mean? It basically means, do you have to have some other act before this bars you? That's what we believe. And, and if you can, the Trump's uh, stance, they're going to argue today, but we're party of this, not just an amicus, but a party, is that you know, if Congress takes a step, impeachment, enacting some kind of law, some kind of step that holds you accountable for this act, that, that could be enough. If a court had held that the president had uh, Trump had, had actually committed that this crime 
of course, that would hold. But if you actually read the 14th Amendment, it, it says it's a bar from holding the office, not necessarily from running for the office. And there's this post cleanup that can be done, which I think also speaks to kind of where it kicks in, which is that the Congress can always remove this burden. So not, not a court, but Congress by a two-thirds vote. Unlikely, of course, in our current political climate, that that would be done for any uh, kind of party's presidential nominee or their winning presidential nominee. But you see right there, I mean, that's three different ways the court could go. You could also go and just say the president is not an officer. This doesn't apply. Uh, and that's because typically throughout the Constitution, you'll see officers mentioned and the president is mentioned separately, uh, including it in the impeachment clause, a poisonous clause. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts has signed on to an opinion before where he said, you know, the president appoints officers. That's the difference between the president, who is in himself a branch of government, which is unique because the executive branch is really all about, though it's gotten very large in the United States, the president of the United States. So these are. we also have a First Amendment issue representing the state party and the right to uh, peacefully assemble and, again, decide on their own uh, who their nominees are going to be and not have that infringed on or told who you can vote for or not vote for. Uh, by a court uh, that would, when this again hasn't been adjudicated on uh, whether or not this bar kicks in. I'm speaking with Jordan Seculo, who is the executive director for the center, the American Center for Law and Justice. And speaking of the 14th Amendment, I mean, there are several problems here, Jordan, that, and a few of which you mentioned, which is that uh, th- this does not appear to, this section does not appear to be self-executing. There has to be a step because the language is um, no person Uh, And then they go on and list several um, individuals, which, by the way, one of them is not the president of the United States. That's an issue. But then also um, no person that um, is listed shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same um, against the United States. And so what does that term shall have engaged mean? Has there been a finding? What do you make of um, the and the fact that this is not it doesn't say anywhere in the language a conviction it doesn't mention the courts this is all about congress um but what do you make of the fact that there was a finding at least on the trial court level in colorado that trump did engage in insurrection even though that was a civil case does that does that necessarily matter in terms of well yeah there's been an adjudication because it was at least on the trial court level yeah, I think that, again, it's, it's more of a criminal statute. And like you said, I think it lives more in the federal world and in the congressional world. I mean, obviously, if, it, if this is a case for the Supreme Court to go broad, it could also go narrow. I mean, it, it's kind of uh, – it, it the, this current court, I mean, there's ways you could see them going, no, I know there were liberal state courts that totally tossed us out. So this is not – uh, we're not going to take this. We're not even, and, and we, you know, we, we were, I think we were active in 12 states until this was ultimately taken up by the Supreme Court. And so, and we know that there, the ramifications of this are huge because there are probably 10 more states, blue states, that are in the process in case the Supreme Court does allow this, of barring President Trump from both primary and general election ballots. Now, there's some interesting things the court could do, like we just discussed the, uh, could they say, well, it's not about the primary, and then we move on and almost open this up to, well, what about the general election? And then, I mean, so I, I'm not sure. I think this timing of this is too close, but I, I think that the civil side of this, that doesn't provide the kind of due process uh, necessary to bar someone this way. But, I, again, we, we, we don't have a ton of history here because 
you had obviously the Civil War in the 14th Amendment to point to, and the idea of whether or not this even applies. I mean, so even if that theory was right, that a civil court case applies, does, it, does this affect the president of the United States when it applies to the president of the United States at, at this time? Because, again, not an officer takes a different oath. I mean, we, we go through all these different points. The fact that the president has their own oath to the Constitution, separate from everyone else in the federal government. Uh, and that, that was, again, that's all found in uh, the original Constitution before this amendment. And I think it kind of is the opposite. You know, we were talking about this yesterday. It's almost the opposite of the idea of the entire 14th Amendment, which was to make sure states didn't step in uh, during the Civil War as we were moving towards a long battle for civil rights in America. This idea that they were limited in the ability to say, no, you know, we're, we're not going to recognize this in our state, and we're not going to allow, we're not going to have, you know, equal protection or due process. And so, uh, again, I think what we'll learn from the oral arguments today is: are, are the justices going for something broad or narrow? And we know that Chief Justice Roberts, if he, the more justice he could get on board, uh, especially in cases that could be very controversial, maybe they can come up with an opinion that that isn't, which is just just doesn't apply here. Uh, you know. People can vote for who they vote for. This goes to, back to, again, people get to nominate, and we don't believe that. Or do they go a kind of uh, a very specific in this once and for all and say this does not apply to, to the president and future presidents or presidential candidates, and that's it. I mean, so I, I, they have a lot of options on our side to take uh, on a narrow step and a, and a broad step. So that makes it unique, too. This is – Kind of like not like overturning Roe versus Wade. It is a huge case with huge ramifications. And for our client, uh, if you and I know this can be tough for people, but uh, if you've got to take President Trump out of it for a moment and think about the fact that if this is in place, a hostile state government, like for instance in Maine, have to have an adjudication on this whether or not you qualify for their ballot, which is you know the basic qualifications that states are allowed to make, which is the courts have upheld, and they've also struck down the ones that they thought were uh, went too far in violation of the, the Constitution. And there, I mean, just think about that fact that, that again, it, it didn't even get through an actual trial, and they were going to, they were going to say, no, on that day, they could remove it from the ballot. So, again, I think the court's got to act fast. This, I think, has to be resolved almost before Super Tuesday. Because think about the fact that people have already voted, and in a, in a few states, and they're about to vote in a dozen. So, you know, it's, I expect this, it's, it's a, it hasn't been the most fast-track case in the history of the court, but it's certainly it's on a fast track, and I, I think we expect to get a decision uh, within the next, you know, sometime before Super Tuesday, that, that first week in March. We should. And I'm speaking with Jordan Sekula, who is the executive director of the American Center for Law and Justice. And we are in February. And typically, if there's oral argument, uh, we wouldn't expect a decision until June or late June. But obviously, that would be a little uh, later than than we would prefer and that, that, that I think the Supreme Court would prefer. And you're absolutely right. And in fact, um, I just told listeners yesterday regarding the presidential immunity case that you have to take Trump out of this. This is not about whether you prefer uh, Trump or not as, as your candidate or political. Politically, this is all about the precedential value of these cases. So in just the last about four minutes I have with you, Jordan Sekulow, let's talk yeah. about the Supreme Court composition. You mentioned, you know, kind of our side. And I think people understand generally that the Supreme Court is um, more conservative. I, I would say we're kind of in a 3-3-3 composition, um, not not 
completely conservative and that we can uh, count on the Supreme Court majority necessarily ruling, not in our favor per se, but uh, in an originalist fashion. And so uh, a lot of people are suggesting that this may be a 9-0 opinion or an 8-1 I'm not really sure I see um, at least the three most liberal justices because of the political nature involved um, allowing that and maybe on a more narrow uh, ground trying to dissent. Um, So what is your perspective as far as as where we might get? Will we at least hopefully get a 5-4 in in favor of uh, genuine democracy, which is interestingly what the liberals and the Democrats always say they're for, right? (laughs) Yes, I, I, I do think ultimately, and most time with these cases, even especially with presidential issues, most of those commentators would be nervous to even make any predictions, right? I mean, it's, it's because it's, it's, it's a he- such a heavy weight of issue, but because this one is, is not like, not, I would say very different from like the immunity case and all those kind of issues, uh, that this, uh, again, goes to more of an election issue and people getting right, the right to vote and, and choose. I think, Again, there's this, there's a narrow path for the court, and there's the there's the broader path. If they if if the chief justice, I think, and, and others believe that they could handle this, it even was problem narrowly by just saying we don't believe you know this section just just doesn't apply, or the for this this it's not self-executing. So one of those two options, not that you can ever in, invoke this, uh, but that you've got to have you've got to invoke it in a specific way. Or that you say that this doesn't apply because this he's on the officer one they have gone back and forth on so I think that might get it down to a sliver uh, uh, still pro- possibly a win but I think if they look at whether or not again you've just got to have more due process here or some kind of action by Congress uh, you know or or a criminal court before. Uh, this kicks in, and, and and again, they're going to look at the history and when this provision was you know, put in the Constitution, how how it's been used, and, and I think ultimately, again, it doesn't really matter who you support for president. I know that's tough for liberals on the court. It's tough for Republicans too, because there's Republicans on both sides of this issue of whether this applies here or not. But you know, if you really didn't believe it applied, you know, why why you, why wait three years, four years uh, when you knew this was a likely scenario? Um, and kind of try to do this last minute, which is almost voter suppression in itself, because if this case isn't out by uh, Super Tuesday, people are going to wonder, what is my vote going to matter? Because what happens here, it's not like they just take your name off the ballot, people can write you in and that will count. It doesn't matter what you who you vote for. If you vote for that person who's barred, so in this case it would be President Trump, your vote will not count. I don't think yeah, the Supreme and, Court is going to look real, and it, real, real. And we got to leave it there. Jordan Seculo, Executive Director of American Center for Law and Justice. You can go to ACLJ.org. Oral argument, 10 a.m. this morning. We'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. If you're like most of us, you're paying way too much for healthcare. That's why I want to tell you about a ministry that has been meeting the healthcare needs of hundreds of thousands of Christians, and that's Christian Healthcare Ministries, chministries.org. Christian Healthcare Ministries is cost sharing made easy. For over 40 years, this unique model has allowed believers to choose their own doctors without worrying about networks or waiting periods, since they are not insurance, but a faith-based alternative to insurance. Members not only get advantage 
advantages from the affordability, flexibility, and reliability of CHM, but they also receive access to 24-7 telehealth services at no additional cost. It's no surprise that doctors across the country appreciate working with CHM, and so will you. It all starts with a visit to chministries.org AFR. That's chministries.org AFR. Christian Healthcare Ministries is the longest-serving health share ministry, serving all 50 states. Share the good news with a friend, too. chministries.com AFR. Make the switch today with anytime enrollment. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And we are still talking about the GOP, but this time the national uh, GOP and specifically the RNC. So Ronna McDaniel, who has been the chairwoman for the past three terms, uh, reports are that she will be stepping down. And this comes after reporting by investigative journalist Jennifer Van Lahr from Red State. Uh, this exclusive reporting that actually started back in 2022 before uh, Ronna was up for a re-election as chair. Uh, and this exclusive coming January 31st, so um, just about uh, eight or nine days ago, exclusive RNC spent $1.5 million on floral arrangements, limos, management, media consultants, and more. And so in the wake of this reporting, uh, there was a lot of pressure for uh, Ron McDaniel to step down because the RNC, um, of course, has faced financial issues. They've just approved a, um, I believe it's about $10 million line of credit, so um, are having a lot of financial problems. So joining me to discuss all this and more is Jennifer Van Lahr, who has done all of this great reporting. And um, Jennifer, this has uh, really gone viral for people, um, I think, suggesting that uh, that other people, like, for example, Vivek Ramaswamy, who uh, really hit Rana hard from the debate stage, you know, that some of those reasons were that uh, Trump has asked her to resign. Um, but really, I think the timing here shows that your reporting uh, was uh, was really the, the significant move towards this. So uh, what did you actually uncover from the RNC? Thank you. So, yes, this started, like you mentioned, back in uh, December of 2022. And after we had come off that terrible loss in the 2022 midterm election and started looking at what she was spending the money on, and it wasn't the things that win elections. So that kind of started the ball rolling there. Uh, Ronna was able to kind of keep the members of the 168 in line and get re-election. But I think that that report, and that kind of went viral at that time, uh, turned a lot of donors off of the RNC and started those problems where they weren't getting the donations in 2023 that they needed. So then when this report, uh, which I started in November of 2023, came out, just as the RNC winter meeting was starting in Las Vegas, it showed everyone that she didn't learn anything from these losses in any way. She kept spending in ways that were wasteful, in addition to not giving the base or the grassroots the tools that they needed to win elections. Like we know that she starved Virginia of money that they needed that could have kept their state house conservative um, in the 2023 election. So, yeah, I think that, that that all led to all of this. But what we found that was the most troubling in this update was that the Democrats are far outspending the Republicans when it goes to transferring money to state parties, get out the vote texting, voter file maintenance, and the data kind of things, and the data that's the backbone of everything that goes to get out the vote. 
Yeah, and, and this uh, really goes to, I think, the the deeper issue of the RNC is that uh, they're just not winning. And, and we can see that not just from um, you know, federal elections, but even uh, state elections. And you know, there's analysis that a lot of people have have posted to say, okay, here's where we were. And over the past, you know, maybe um, you know, six or eight election cycles, obviously including midterms, off cycle elections, uh, we're we're just losing ground as conservatives. And so, um, so Rana, in in my view, and I've long been a critic of her. And um, for those who who follow me on social media, I, I've trended a few times that hashtag Rana must go um, for a number of reasons, but. Primarily Primarily because um, you're right, I think, Jennifer, that she simply hasn't learned from uh, past mistakes. She isn't managing the party well, and she also um, has has not given states the support that they need. And so uh, back when she was um, running for RNC chair for a third time, which was against her promise, it was fascinating to, to me to see that it was polls were suggesting that like 98 percent of grassroots Republicans, the actual voters, did not want to see her leading the party. And yet she was overwhelmingly reelected because it was just the uh, state party officers that vote for the chairperson. So where uh-huh. are the state party chairs, uh, to your knowledge, in terms of what happens next? So what I was told from sources I had in the meetings at Las Vegas was that 60 plus of them and this is as of Wednesday morning, which is the first day of the meeting, um, and when my report had come out, that about 60-plus of them were definitely believing what was in my report and wanting change. The problem is that a lot of these people, it's wild. They're so disconnected from the base. They're in each of these state party delegations that goes to the RNC, Two of the members are elected directly from the state party executive board themselves. So they could be people that have a lot of money that don't really interact with the average person that has been in these positions for decades. And it shows because they they don't have any clue what the base wants, but yet they're in this position. So whether these people will want to vote Rana out is going to depend on President Trump basically telling them that that's what he wants because he's the presumptive nominee and he'll be leading the party. So they will they will defer to him. Uh, But privately, at least a third of these uh, of these RNC members are saying, yeah, we have an issue. We have a problem here with the spending and they should have a problem with the losing, frankly. Absolutely. And I'm speaking with Jennifer Van Lar, who is an investigative journalist at Red State. And you can read her excellent piece uh, at redstate.com, which is titled Exclusive RNC Spent $1.5 Million on Floral Arrangements, Limos, Management, Slash Media Consultants. And uh, we have seen uh, the spending of the RNC. And we've seen, you know, that, that as you said, they're just not winning. And, um, and, and of course, these types of positions that are high up in the RNC are not um, elected officials in in government. And so what listeners need to understand is that um, this is all about the money. This is all about financing campaigns and and giving the, the, the money that you that you donate via WinRed and, and donate to the RNC. Um, they are the number one basically pack or super pack of that funds uh, statewide races, federal races, and is is the 
arm of the Republican Party that controls most of the funds. And that's why this is so important. And and so you look at um, at Rana as well as the head of the RNC, uh, Jen, and it really surprised me to see some of the support that she gave to candidates that really didn't represent the traditional values of the Republican Party or conservative values. Um, like, for example, the candidate for U.S. Senate from my former home state of Colorado, who was very pro-choice. And that didn't really matter. Um, and, and she has been uh, in the lane of, well, let's get a big tent party. Let's uh, th- the math is what matters. And yet she's supporting and funding candidates that ultimately lose uh, like the candidate out of Colorado. So in looking for a replacement when she does step down, um, there are a number of names that are being thrown around. Um, the the one that most listeners will know is Kevin McCarthy. Interestingly, uh, that he has been floated as maybe a dark horse. But um, when I spoke with you yesterday, kind of in prepping for this segment, you had mentioned a couple of other names that are potentials that people probably haven't heard of. Yeah, and that there's a lot of horse trading that's going on behind the scenes right now, because even when Rana resigns, and she is going to, despite her subtle protestations yesterday, that the 168 have to vote on it. So there's horse trading going on, like, okay, well, if we get this person chair, who would be co-chair? But I think that McCarthy's uh, name floating is a serious thing and it's for one reason because he has a lot of money still within his pack and that cannot happen because he we know that he lost the speakership basically because of his transactional nature over years and promising things that he couldn't really deliver to someone because he might have promised something to someone else that is exactly how he would run the rnc and it wouldn't be about winning Hmm. Yeah. And and interestingly, uh, he's being floated, I think, as well, because he does have a good ability to fundraise. And the RNC is really needing that at this point. But you mentioned this is all about transactional politics. And if there is one lesson I learned really quickly in my very brief time uh, in the swamp in D.C. is that there's always more going on behind the scenes than just this is the best person for the job. This is the best policy. It's always a transactional nature and what people are getting and negotiating behind the scenes. So um what about the other uh, person that you mentioned from, um, I think it was, it's the California GOP chair, uh, Jessica Patterson. So she's definitely being floated as co-chair. She, what people need to know about her is that she has, her whole career has come about because of Kevin McCarthy. Uh, she's worked with him closely for the past 20 years and, so basically having Jessica in there would be having McCarthy running the RNC. Hmm. Well, and and that's where we've seen, you know, Rana has basically done um, Trump's bidding over <laughs> over her tenure and um, is, in my opinion, why she was reelected uh, the, the third time uh, was because, of course, uh, Trump and then also um, one of his main aides, Susie Wiles, uh, really whipped the votes um, to get Rana in spite of what the the grassroots wanted and even what the, the MAGA movement overall is very anti-Rana. So that contrast um, and, and a little bit of cognitive dissonance is, is interesting. Um, but let's also talk about Harmeet Dillon, because she was really the main player um, in that uh, that contest uh, that was running as the opponent of uh, Ronna McDaniel. And we just talked about in the earlier segment, for those um, who are just joining now, about the Supreme Court case that is being argued today in at 10 a.m. Uh, that is about whether or not Colorado can kick Trump off the ballot. 
and uh, Harmeet and her uh, Dylan Law Group are actually the counsel of record in that case. And so she has been um, ardently advocating for uh, First Amendment issues. She understands and has been part of the RNC for a really long time. Uh, people have been concerned that maybe she is uh, too much in line with Trump in some ways. I don't personally see that. I think that she is supporting him in some really good ways, like this uh, this case in front of the Supreme Court, where I, I absolutely think that, uh, that she should and, and Trump should win that case. But I think that she understands um, the the politicking and is willing to stand up and say this is the right decision. Uh, what's your opinion, Jen, on on Harmeet? And does she still have the same level of support that she did back when she was running against Rana? I agree with everything that you just said there. And I think she does at least have the same amount of support. I know she's told me both privately and she's said online that she is not seeking to be the chair at this point, that she likes doing the legal stuff. I don't know if if they approached her and said everyone wants you to be, if she would refuse it. But I think that, that she makes a good point. We really need a robust legal program at the RNC. And maybe the best place for Harmeet is to have her strategizing, give a 40,000-foot view of here's where different lawsuits need to be filed across the country and prioritize them and fund them so that we can start really making change at some of these state houses where we need changes in election law or battling back against ballot access and making sure that we win those things and have good attorneys because the general counsel at the RNC now has never argued a case in his life. That's Michael Watley, who they want to make the chair. He has a law degree, but he had to reactivate it to become the general counsel and his only clerk and never been in a courtroom. So I think having him over all of the election integrity stuff is, is just terrible. Yeah, and, uh, and and I could not agree with you more in terms of uh, the RNC not being very helpful on the election integrity issues. Um, and also Justin Reamer, who's one of the, the counsel uh, for the RNC, is, in my opinion, um, you know, one of those that is also not doing a great job, even though he's a little bit more of a lawyer <laughs> than um, apparently, <laughs> uh, you know, some of these other people. But um, but when you look at the, the group, like I had Cleta Mitchell on, um, I believe it was last week on air here, and she's uh, with the Conservative Partnership Institute. And it's the um, the fellow there for election integrity issues, and she runs a group that I'm a part of, and, and we have a phone call every Friday, and um, and it's interesting to see how much um, just spread of ideas and and implementations of things that everybody has. And yet the main issue, of course, is always funding. Who is funding um, these types of suits? Where's the master plan kind of thing? And and I agree with you um, that if somebody like Harmeet were able to take some of the resources that the RNC could provide and then actually go and fund different people to to do different things, maybe we would have a little bit more cohesive um, defenses and actually advances on some of these election integrity issues like what the left has with their whole democracy docket, as they kind of falsely call it. And they're making headway right. because they have funds. They don't care about just getting, you know, media hits. They they care about actually getting the work done. And so all of these issues, uh, Jen Van Lar, I, I think that this goes to the heart of why people are so frustrated with the RNC, because it seems like they are much more interested in spending $1.5 million on floral arrangements, limos, and management media consultants than they actually are about doing the business of winning right because a lot of the business of winning like in journalism or in law is it's not done in front of cameras and it's not fun and it's a lot of work 
And to do that, it takes someone who really believes in what they're doing. And it doesn't seem like the people in charge of the party now are that serious about believing in the cause. Well, and from what you've said in just the last two minutes I have with you here, Jen, and I so appreciate your reporting and and thank you from the bottom of my heart for your your uh, your work here that is finally getting Rana out of the RNC, just as, as my opinion, I think she needed to go a long time ago. So um, I am delighted to see this happen. I hope that she'll be replaced with someone who actually uh, makes these changes that we've been talking about. Um, but for listeners who are very concerned about this and want to have their voices heard, does it matter at all? to contact their state officers and suggest uh, that they get someone in there to do these kinds of things or even suggest a candidate's name? I mean, is that even a possibility? It does. Of the, of- it makes a difference. Yeah, it just just be very uh, professional and give good reasons why, not just I'm mad at Rhonda and I hate her, you know, right? <laughs> right? Give some good reasons why and, and some potential like qualifications of what you want to see in a replacement. Great. Well, we will uh, continue to follow that. And do we have a time frame on, you know, when a re-election would be held? Very shortly after South Carolina, because we are in the middle of this election year, and I'm sure they want to get the person uh, up to speed. All right. Well, excellent. Well, Jen Van Lahr, who is a writer for Red State, you can read all of her work at redstate.com. Really appreciate you getting up so early. I know you're in California, so it's very, very early for you there on the West Coast. But thanks so much for your work. We'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Last year, because of you, Preborn's network of clinics saw over 58,000 babies saved. Thank you to all who made this possible. Let's celebrate these precious babies. Dominique really struggled with her faith when she found out she was pregnant. She didn't know how she could carry her baby to term, but she called on God for help and asked for a sign. That's when she ran into who she calls her guardian angel on the steps of the abortion clinic. This man told her there is a better way, and he walked her across the street to a preborn network clinic. When she saw her beautiful baby on ultrasound and realized that he was an actual person living inside of her, the answer became loud and clear. She chose life for her precious son. Each of these babies are truly miraculous, and every day, Preborn celebrates 200 miracles. $28 a month can be the difference between the life and the death of a child. When a mother meets her baby on ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection that doubles the baby's chance at life. Let's join together and help mothers choose life. Just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby, or visit preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And Senate Republicans on Wednesday, so late last night, blocked a package that included aid for Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, and provisions to uh, potentially beef up border security. There's some debate on that. And uh, this has been a long-coming conclusion to the bipartisan negotiations. The bill failed to advance 49 to 50, falling well short of the 60-vote threshold. So joining me now to discuss this and more is our good friend Oren McIntyre, who is uh, with The Blaze. And I want to get to your column because I actually think that's the more important topic. But uh, Oren, let's get your quick thoughts on uh, 
this vote and and the failure, I mean, are, are we ever going to do anything with Congress about the border? No, I don't think so. And the the reason is that this is never really an issue that the legislative branch needed to solve at this point. The laws for the president to go ahead and enforce the border already exist on the books. The resources that are there may be insufficient to the task, but they're not interested in that task. It's very clear at the moment that open borders is the goal of the Biden administration. And until the executive changes the way that they execute their current role, any kind of legislation is not going to change that fact. Yeah, really well said. And that goes into the failed impeachment of Secretary uh, Mayorkas, which, you know, in my view is is kind of a rabbit chase, because even if uh, that vote ends up being successful and it's and it will probably be up for reconsideration, uh, Biden, e- even if that was successful in a trial in the Senate, which I don't see them getting to uh, that two thirds threshold um, after a trial, if it even proceeds, Biden will just replace Mayorkas with another guy who's derelicting his duty. And I'm not sure if it rises to the level of high crimes or misdemeanors, probably. And I think there's a good case for that. Um, But, you know, really, shouldn't Congress be going after Biden himself? Absolutely. I mean, don't get me wrong. Facilitating an invasion is a impeachable offense. And so I think that there is perfectly good ground to stand on for either of these people. But yes, obviously, Biden is the real problem here, though, that's even in question. I mean, Joe Biden is talking about dead people. He, he doesn't know where he is. It's very clear that he does very little of the day-to-day running of the administration. And so would even impeaching Biden matter at, at some level at this point? But yes, if you're going to spend your efforts anywhere, that does seem to be like the place to focus. Yeah, that, that's also a really good point, Orrin McIntyre, that, uh, you know, then if Biden was gone, then, you know, whoever is controlling him, just like Mayorkas would just, you know, put somebody else in there. And so it's going to be very interesting to see if he does end up staying at the top of that ticket and how that plays out into 2024. Uh, but let's get to your article, because I, I think this is just a fascinating and very well-written piece per the usual, because uh, and I read everything that you write because um, you're excellent um, w- at the blaze. And this opinion piece is titled Why Americans Are No Longer Governed by the Constitution. Uh, Conservatives like to believe that restoration of constitutional governance will fix our woes, but the founding document cannot make people virtuous or free. Yeah, basically, the the piece was just pointing out to a lot of people that the Constitution is really only a reflection of the character of our founding stock, the beliefs, the core values, the traditions, the history of our founding fathers. And that is steeped, most importantly, in uh, in Protestant Christianity. Protestant Christianity was the cultural and traditional and moral web that held our kind of very disparate nation together. And it's always been the thing that has been the common ground on which things like our Constitution could draw from. And when we don't have that, when, when we don't have that virtue, when we don't have that religious moral vision that gives us the common language and common goals to aim for, then the Constitution itself can't make us those people. It's not the Constitution that makes the people. It's the people that make the Constitution. And without that, without that firmament from which our constitutional government can arise, the paper itself doesn't actually bind us together in a meaningful way. 
Yeah, and, and this is something that I've also long talked about, Oren, that the Constitution itself is just the nuts and bolts of the powers that we, the people, through our mutual consent, uh, delegate and appoint to uh, the federal government, then the state government, and then reserve to ourselves uh, the people. And those powers can be used for good or for evil. And obviously, the Declaration is our worldview statement, which uh, which says that we believe that truth is self-evident, that you know we're all made in the image of God, and that God is the one that gives us our rights, not the government, um, the purpose and legitimacy of government. All of that is a worldview statement. And um, and our founders rightly said that our Constitution was made only for a moral and upright people. It's wholly inadequate uh, for a governance of any other. And and I think that that cannot be overstated when we're looking at 2024 and we're seeing how some of the powers of government are being used for evil, even if they're they're still within technically um, the framework of the Constitution. This is why policy matters and why people that we put in office matter because they are the decision makers. That's right. We have to we have to avoid the trap of legal positivism. We have to avoid the trap of thinking that simply because something is written down, it must be followed, and that's the end of it, that, that writing things down is the solution to the problem, that our problem is strictly mechanical in nature. Our problem is actually spiritual in nature. As I point out in the piece, the philosopher Joseph de Maistre believed that no human had ever written a political constitution, and that all political constitutions were written onto the hearts of the people by the Almighty God. And so there's no way that we can write our way out of this problem. There's no way that we can create a legal structure that pulls us out of this problem. The Constitution only has weight. The beliefs only have weight if they are followed through, if they are carried out by people who have those things written on their hearts by God. And that's really the key when it comes to thinking about how we apply government. It's not about the paper. It's about the people. Absolutely. I'm speaking with Oren McIntyre, um, who is a writer at The Blaze Media. And and this is why it's so important for everyone listening who uh, is Christian and conservative and very passionately interested in politics, as we should be. This is why primarily we need to be part of a local church and we need to be investing in our communities and the culture around us and engaging those issues. Because as Andrew Breitbart very famously said, um, politics is downstream from culture and and when we're only fighting these battles, once they arrive at a, a courtroom and we're looking for justice, if we don't even as a society have a consensus on what justice means or what uh, human rights consist of, when we have people like Jack Phillips who who are going through um, you know the, the modern day star chambers of the Colorado Civil Rights Division that that are already so far beyond anything that that a moral and upright society uh, would allow, then we're already too far gone. And and obviously we need to fight these legal battles. We need more lawyers that are willing to stand up and do this. But we have to fight this first and foremost on a worldview level and on an education level. And this is why, Oren, um, I, I think it's so important to see how the left is targeting education, targeting our kids, and taking a cultural Marxist view because they know that, um, like 
like Stalin and Mao, that if you can go after the kids and you can indoctrinate them, then in in 10 or 20 years, and we're already seeing the, the consequence of this and the product of this, then you can transform a society from within. Absolutely. There's a reason the left committed to the long march through the institutions. You know, they understood that the revolution in the United States couldn't come from economic disparity because our system was simply too prosperous. So instead, they understand that the that the cultural revolution was the key. And so that's why they made sure to capture things like the educational system, because while the culture may or politics may be downstream from culture, culture is downstream from power. And because they were able to capture the power of these institutions, they were able to then instruct the culture that would come out of them. And so we have to understand that one of the key things we need to do is get government out of education. It needs to, they, they need to stop being the primary educator of our children, because as long as these institutions are captured by the left and they're the primary moral force in these children, these, uh, these kids' lives, we're going to continue to get generations who aren't going to understand what the Constitution is even talking about. Yes, and we cannot make the mistake of replacing a, a religion with politics. And I think a lot of conservatives, to, to a certain extent, are guilty of this when we focus so much on politics that we diminish the importance of, uh, in in the three spheres of government, the church government and the family government, which should control and should be the primary institutions that God ordained, and the civil government uh, simply doing its its job to uh, to hold a moral and upright society together so that we we have human flourishing and we have the freedoms and the abilities to have um, free exercise of religion so that we have parental rights so that we can exercise our Judeo-Christian worldview um, in those other spheres. But like we've done with the three branches of federal government and we've made the judiciary way more prominent um, and out of place and in control than it ever should. And it's almost like we are we are worshiping the nine justices um, and saying, well, whatever the robed uh, seers say, well, then that's what we have to, to go uh, to go with. And that's a commentary on morality on society. We need to reject that. And we need to reject this notion that um, that politicians are going to save the country. It would be the church. It's the word of God. And it is parents educating their children, discipling them. That, Oren, is what I believe ultimately would save this country. Absolutely. And one of the key things that I think conservatives have to realize is that means we have to be willing to support the kinds of things that build strong families. That means we need to have things like affordable housing. We need to have a wage that allow people for one parent to work so that the other can educate the children so that the state doesn't have to raise your children. These are goals that need to be part of the conservative ideal, because if we don't have those things, people will not form families. Those families will not be self-sufficient. They will then become reliant on the government, and the government will be the one that raises your children and gains that power. People are dependent, and they have to be dependent on someone. If they're not dependent on their families, they will be dependent on the government. And so as conservatives, if we don't want a large tyrannical state brainwashing children that means we have to create an environment where children can grow up under the tutelage of their parents 
Yes. And, and this is where uh, Marxism and, and their their goals, the goals of Marxism are to tear down the church, the family and private property. And we're seeing that, unfortunately, a lot of the rise of cultural Marxism and this view of the sexual revolution and this view of we need to attain more private property by having uh, a two income household and then sending our kids off. Um, all of these things that were um, that were kind of the the fantasy fairy tale kind of ideal were actually misplaced, and we have unknowingly or maybe unwittingly bought into the very same system that has now allowed for cultural transformation instead of recognizing that church, family, private property depends on educating children, training up your children in the way they should go, as the Bible says, so that when they're older, they won't depart from it. And so, um, and you wrote another excellent piece, Oren McIntyre, talking about how conservatives um, need to not try to reform institutions, but um, we need to make sure that we are, we are moving forward in a way that actually makes sense as well. Yeah, again, it's, it's really critical that we don't just look at something and say, well, the system is fine now. Yeah, the state raises their children. Yeah, now the state educates their children. Now we just need to change what they're saying. No, that's not the problem. I mean, yes, that would be great. That's, that's at least a step in the right direction. But ultimately, the problem is that the government is doing a job that is not, it's not designed to do, it was never supposed to do, and it then becomes a weapon in the hands of those who want to corrupt things. Like you said, we were so interested in turning over large amounts of our responsibilities to the government so that we could pursue more individual pleasure, more individual uh, freedom, more individual wealth, that we turned over key parts of our uh, families, key parts of our communities to the government. And if those institutions are going to continue to exist, eventually they will be taken over by leftists that want to dismantle those other cultural spheres, those other spheres of social power. We need to separate those back. We need to have the church play its key role. We need the family to play its key role, the community to play its key role, social organizations to play its key role. We need those kind of things to rise back up again if the state is ever going to shrink back down. Absolutely. And this is why we need to reject what uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and the cultural Marxists are saying very openly that children belong to the government. And no, we do not co-parent with the government. Children are given by God to their parents and parents are responsible for their training, education and spiritual health and upbringing. And that is yet another principle of Marxism is that children belong to the state and that uh, the state is the one that should be in indoctrinating them and educating them. And so we need to reject all of these uh, different implicit ideologies that I think we've kind of passively ignored. And the church specifically needs to do its job in confronting these false ideas that are pervasive in our culture, not just teaching theology and correct doctrine, but also pointing out false doctrine and contrasting that and saying, this is what the world is saying that is wrong. And there's a great documentary that is coming out. Uh, Actually, it came out this week. I think the premieres tonight, A Letter to the American Church. I I had an opportunity to watch it um, the other night, and Eric Metaxas was also on my show this week. Please listen to that segment at AFR.net. That documentary is pointing out so many of these problems and encouraging pastors and Christians to engage and confront the culture before it is too late. So Oren McIntyre at The Blaze, always appreciate your insights and commentary. You can reach me and my team, Jenna, at AFR.net. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio. 
I want to thank my sponsors, Preborn and Christian Healthcare Ministries. Preborn Network Clinics have rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and every day they save 200 babies' lives. But they can't do it without our help. Will you head over to preborn.com slash AFR and sponsor an ultrasound? Christian Healthcare Ministries is the longest serving health cost sharing ministry, helping Christians pay for and pray for one another's medical bills. Make the switch today and start saving. Visit chministries.org slash AFR. That's chministries.org slash AFR.